A reading from Proverbs. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Whoever sows justice will reap calamity, and the rod of anger will fail. Those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with the poor. Do not rob the poor because they are poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord pleads their cause and despoils of life those who despoil them. The word of the Lord. A reading from the letter of James. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in your glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, and also said, you shall not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is, what is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people.
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Jesus set out, went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. She came and bowed down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Gospel of the Lord. From our second reading today, My brothers and sisters, uh uh-oh, sit up. Pay attention. It reminds me of one of my brothers in the Brotherhood of St. Gregory, and when we're gathered in community together back east, frequently in the refectory, sometimes there is a booming voice that says, Brother! And everybody in the room sits up like this. Appropriately, the owner of that voice is named James. Today's readings are bracing in the way that they call us to an ancient wisdom that predates Christianity. It goes back to some of the earliest strata of Hebrew writings, and it talks about God's favor for the least among us, God's love, if you will for the poor, that there is priority there. 
which should make you uncomfortable. It's okay. We are meant to be made uncomfortable by these readings. If we're not, we're not really listening. And if that's not uncomfortable enough, we have Jesus' remarkable encounter this day with the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus does not come out looking all that good, does he? Particularly to our liberal ears, living as we do in a society that attempts to value pluralism, for Jesus to call her a dog should set us back on our heels at least a little bit. It's hard for us to hear Jesus speaking this language. And at first glance, it seems as though, it seems as though this is some sort of other world. It's a place we can barely imagine. It's a cultural context that we can only sort of begin to reconstruct in our mind's eye. And we can talk about it a little bit in that Mark is almost gratuitous in the way he describes this woman. She is not simply Gentile, that is, in the original language, Greek, that is, an outsider as far as the people of Israel are concerned. She probably didn't speak Aramaic, and she most assuredly did not speak Hebrew, but she's also Syrophoenician, which is telegraphing to Mark's audience something that Matthew picks up in his retelling of the story, which is that she's Canaanite. That means, from the perspective of first-century Israelites, she is at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. She is lowest on the totem pole. Anyone who had been faithfully going to synagogue in the first century, including Jesus, would have heard stories that we all hear when we read about the Exodus and the Israelites coming into the Promised Land, that one of their primary tasks was to drive out the Canaanites. They had God's blessing to do that, even by violent means and that the Canaanites were considered dirty because they didn't attend to any of the laws regarding food or proper manners. And on top of that, we have, you might say, the most ill-mannered among them in this woman who approaches Jesus when she has no business in her society approaching a man, let alone an Israelite, let alone speaking to him, let alone demanding something of him. Jesus would have been perfectly within his rights in his society to ignore her, to pretend she didn't even exist, to walk away, to dismiss her without even the barest glance. And no one, not even his disciples, would have batted and I. God's favor for the poor. It should be remarkable to us as it would have been remarkable to Mark's audience back in the first century that Jesus actually responds to her. Full stop. 
That's remarkable in and of itself. When I was in seminary, one of my classmates was a priest from a diocese in Uganda. And Francis was always very outspoken about the things that struck him as he engaged with American society, particularly the assumptions that we make in the West about how to comport ourselves and the assumptions we make based on our privilege and our affluence. He was known, even back in Uganda, to stand up in the middle of meetings with UN officials and confront the officials and say, what happens if instead of throwing all this money into the African continent, you give us the means to solve our own problems? And frequently, the officials had no idea what to say to that. They were dumbfounded. Because, of course, in the good Western assumption, we have the solutions, right? We know what needs to be done. We can tell them what to do. Francis was having none of it. The thing that has stuck with me the longest, even though I haven't spoken with Francis in years, is when he said to me and other members of our class, point blank, he said, you will never understand faith, he said, until you are praying because you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You will never understand faith in God until you are praying because you don't know where your next meal is coming from. That is to say, the gospel speaks most directly and most easily to those who have nothing, not even the knowledge of whether they will survive. It is to the least of these that the gospel speaks. And that is where the Syrophoenician woman lives in this story in Mark. This past summer, I was busy at General Convention. Some of you have heard I was on the Resolutions Review Committee which means I got to be in a little room that we began to affectionately call the Bat Cave, up above the House of Deputies. We had two computer screens, we had a projector and a big monitor so we could follow what was going on down in the House of Deputies and sometimes play Mystery Science Theater 3000 and throw things at the screen and, and make make rude remarks. It was a little bit like uh, working in a restaurant in the kitchen. You know, the air would turn blue on occasion. Our job, our job, as we like to say, was to make sure that no one broke the church. No one broke the church. Or as we like to say a little bit more forcefully, don't break the church is our motto. So we were reviewing lots of resolutions, 517 to be exact that crossed our desk in about 10 days. And some of those crossed our desk 
three and four times as they were amended in committee and by different houses and going from house to house. By Sunday of general convention, I had sort of bottomed out and hit my exhausted place, but we were finally in a rhythm. And the vice chair of the committee, Megan Castellan, who's a priest and a rector of a church in Ithaca, would take a break when the wave of resolutions would subside a little bit, and she would be busy on her iPhone lining up reservations for buses that were going to Taylor, Texas on Sunday morning. And in fact, on Sunday morning, we piled into churches in Austin, not for the big 10 o'clock services, but for the early services, which somewhat surprised the local clergy, because about a 1,000 of us were going to climb onto these buses, funded by Trinity Wall Street, and we were going to go out to Little Taylor, Texas. Now, Taylor, Texas is like your classic Western scene, you know? One little main street, pretty little facades, late 19th, early 20th century, little shops. If you look at it just the right way, you can imagine Clint Eastwood or somebody walking in, you know, ready to do some gunslinging, wearing his 10-gallon hat. But on the outskirts of Taylor is what looks like, from the distance, a bunker. It's euphemistically called Hutto Residential Center, but it takes only a few seconds longer to realize that it's surrounded by not one, but two chain-link fences to keep people in. And the windows are very narrow so that if the glass is broken, no one can get through them. It's a detention center run by ICE. And we went there to protest because housed in that little building outside this small town in the Texan countryside are 500 women who've been picked up at the border, most of them claiming asylum, and they are there uncertain of their fate, waiting for their next hearing. Now, when members of General Convention arrange something, it's always done in good order, right? So we did everything right. We went to Taylor and we said, we're going to have a protest outside Hutto Detention Center. And they said, okay, but we don't have a permit for that. So they invented one. And so we arrived there and they had space set aside for us in an adjacent field where we could set up a little dais, presiding bishop could lead prayers, we could sing. We got about 20 minutes into that and I saw our bishop, Bishop Mark, making a beeline for the detention center. He said, follow me. And I thought, oh boy, where's he leading us now? Because if you know Bishop Mark, you know he's the one who likes to be out in the streets. He was just out in the streets of San Francisco yesterday, leading a march to bring attention to climate change and the climate summit that's being hosted at Grace Cathedral this week. That's the sort of bishop he is for us. And so he led us along the road, law enforcement coming along the way, telling us politely but firmly to keep things clear for emergency vehicles. 
and that we could come right up to the property line. And I found myself right across from the entrance of Hutto Detention Center looking into these windows. And before long, I started to see movement in the windows. The women inside were waving at us, trying to get our attention. And somebody, just a few people away from me, began to chant in Spanish, we see you. We see you. If you can imagine hundreds of Episcopalians chanting, we see you. We began to understand what the substance is of today's encounter between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus, Mark makes it clear, was entire for a break. He had his own schedule to follow. Just like we were in Austin to do what General Convention always does, pass legislation. And be really good at it, I must say. Jesus, in fact, in her response to her initial request, says, look, look, I am here first and foremost for the children of Israel. To put it in the vernacular, he says, take a number, get in line. He doesn't say, you're out of luck. He says, you have to wait, just like the rest of the Gentiles. I've only got so much bandwidth, and I don't know, this is probably reading too much into it. My homiletics and my New Testament professors would probably kill me for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I get the sense that Jesus is tired, you know? He went to Tyre to get away from the crowds and from his dust-ups with the religious authorities. Syrophoenician woman isn't stupid. She's smart. She expected this from him. She knew what to expect as a Syrophoenician Greek approaching a Jewish teacher. She knew she would be dismissed, and so she has the best come-up, the best response, the wittiest response in all of Scripture for him. And his head is turned, and so is his heart. And what makes it even more remarkable is that of all the figures Jesus encounters in the Gospel of Mark, she is the only one who seems to change his mind. His carefully arranged and crafted schedule is turned over. And Mark drives this home with the next story, where he goes to the Decapolis, which is another place where there are a lot of foreigners, a lot of outsiders, a lot of people that good Jewish men should not be mixing with. And he heals someone who is deaf and suffers a speech impediment. The language is even more powerful than we get through the translation. When Jesus talks about feeding the children. The word for feeding is more than just to feed. It's to satisfy, to fill up. 
to bring to a point of satiation. That's the same image that we have been hearing over and over again for the past, I don't know how many Sundays that have been talking about bread and feeding and nurturing and changing the world. Those women at Hutto Detention Center were so empty that they stayed at the windows and watched every single one of those 30 buses pull out. We learned later. And we learned that for all of our affluence, for all of the power connections that we have in the Episcopal Church, for all the resources that we spend at General Convention, the one thing we gave those women that day was satisfaction with hope. Hope in the face of hopelessness. And we managed to bring a spotlight onto them that blew wind into the sails of a little not-for-profit that had grown up around them to help them navigate the immigration process in this country, hopefully get a hearing for their claims for asylum, reunite some of those women. We were told 40 of them had been separated from their children at the border. And what we learned as well was that in a county that I am pretty sure voted for the current administration in the last election, they had mobilized public antagonism towards housing the detention center there enough that the county is pulling the plug on the contract at the end of this year. They're done. It was remarkable. More remarkable to reflect on the fact that I had gone there, as had a thousand other Episcopalians, with empty hands. Nothing to give but our voices and to say, we see you. To people who had thought that they were dead and buried. To rekindle in them some faith and hope. And you know what? In 20 years, I won't remember a single one of those 517 resolutions we reviewed. But I will remember Hutto. I will remember being there. An event that wasn't planned by the higher-ups of General Convention, but bubbled up from the ground. lesson of the Syrophoenician woman to us is to remember that the risk to us when we reach out to the least among us is not that we'll get taken advantage of. I'll tell you from experience, most of the time that doesn't happen. The risk to us won't be that we lose everything. We probably won't. We're very good at holding on to what we have and more than what we need. The risk to us and the direction that Jesus points us 
is that we will be changed. We will be transformed. Mark is saying to us, to early Christians, through this story, that the way forward for life is to turn the whole social order upside down and to hand power to the powerless. To follow the instruction that my brother Francis pointed out to United Nations officials, don't come here telling us what you're going to do for us. Listen to us, and we will tell you what is needed. To engage the least among us the same way they engage us, with empty hands and open hearts and welcome Christ. If we truly wish to be filled and satisfied, it's the way we approach the table, right? Open hands, we hope with empty hearts. Because, like the Syrophoenician woman, when we have nothing to lose, we have everything to gain. And God meets us there. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.